China has emerged as one of the 21st century's most consequential nations, making it more important than ever to understand how the country is governed. Welcome to Pekingology, the podcast that unpacks China's evolving political system. I'm Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies at CSIS. And this week, I'm joined by Kyle Jaros, an Associate Professor of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame, and Tan Ling, an Assistant Professor of Political Science at the University of Oregon. Today, we'll be discussing their recent paper, Provincial Power in a Centralizing China. Kyle Nealing, thanks for joining the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So I wanted to start out the discussion by asking both of you in turn, if you could give us a, a short intellectual biography. I just want to understand a bit more about how you landed on your current research interest set. And as a follow-up, what are the big research questions, outstanding research questions that motivate your, your continued work right now? What parts of China, China's political system, do you look at and think, how the heck does that work? Sure. So my current research interests very much lie at looking at the complex interaction between the rules of the global economy and the dynamics of domestic policymaking within China. I had some years ago written a book looking at a lot of the dynamism happening within China at the local government level. So a lot of governance innovations that townships and city governments were undertaking in transparency and so on. But as my research evolved, I became more and more interested in how China was interacting with forces of globalization. So my forthcoming book very much examines how the rules of the World Trade Organization, which were designed to kind of bind China towards more stricter forms of market economy governance, how these rules affected the very complex processes of policymaking within China, to basically try to connect the very complex internal governance complexity of, of, of China with what's happening um, in the external economy. So, you know, how do these rules, how does this liberal international project of trying to engage and bind China more tightly into the international order, how has that actually played out on the ground within China? How has it altered the politics of policymaking? Kyle, how did you get interested in your, your current research interests? Yeah, so I, I've been interested in China's central local politics and subnational politics of development and governance for a while now. And I think the reason I first got interested in these questions was because a lot of research on China, as, as you'll both know, focuses very much on what's happening kind of at, at the center, kind of at the court, or what happens very much at, at the local level where the rubber meets the road. And, and I think that's for good reason, right? There's a huge amount of power and intrigue concentrated in Beijing and Zhongnanhai, there's also a lot that really happens that matters at the county level and below in China. And that's been true probably for hundreds, if not thousands of years. But I've always been really interested in these intermediate levels because their role within the system is clearly important, but it's much less clearly defined. And so uh, my research has started out mainly with a, a focus on the kind of provincial level. My current research is looking a bit more now at municipal government and how it's evolving, particularly some of China's big, uh, big cities, but not top tier cities, so some of its deputy provincial cities, provincial capitals, and so forth. But something that's common to both these levels of government, whether it's these sort of big but second tier cities or China's provinces, is that they're very much these intermediate actors who kind of operate in the interstices of the system. And they have a huge amount of power, but their power is not always power of either final authority or of direct control on the ground. So I've been perplexed by what they actually do and how they use their authority. And today we're going to be discussing a recent-ish paper that you both co-authored that was in the China Journal, which 
even just looking at the title immediately revealed to me this big gap that I just hadn't really thought about, which is the, the role of provinces. And the title immediately signaled to me that not only had I not thought about them, but I had just made assumptions about what provinces did and the role they played as subnational and didn't quite understand this unique role. So we're going to get to the meat of the argument of, of this paper in a minute, but I wanted to ask both of you in turn a few level setting or scene setting questions, I guess. And Yaling, if I could start with you, obviously at the, at the center of your paper is a, a further refinement in thinking about relations between, as, as Kyle called it, the court or, or Beijing, which wants to do things out in this vast area that it has to govern. And so in the, the post-Mao era, China has gone through these fits and starts of decentralization and recentralization. I, I wondered if you could just give an overview for listeners if you were describing this kind of four decade plus period, what was this pattern of centralization and decentralization? When was a certain type of autonomy or a certain degree of autonomy seen as beneficial to, to Beijing and the inverse? Sure. So this is a really fascinating aspect of politics within China. As, as you said, Jude, there's been this very long history of centralization, decentralization, followed by recentralization, or what's, what's called in Chinese the fang and the shou. If we just want to start with the Mao era, that would be what we would normally associate with a period of a very high centralization associated with Mao's cult of personality and related large-scale disasters like the Great Leap Famine and national campaigns such as the Cultural Revolution with, you know, sort of Mao's policy preferences and reversals very much having a very large-scale impact that spilled forward and disseminated, spilled over into the rest of the country. And then when we move on to the Deng Xiaoping period, that would be really sort of the golden age period of decentralization, where Deng's approach to managing China was really to delegate authority over economic policy in particular down to local governments. So letting them steer the economy as they saw fit. And that really led to basically the revitalization of entrepreneurship in the countryside, township and village enterprises driving rural industry, special economic zones along the coast driving the emerging sort of trade relations, the manufacturing boom. So this period of decentralization is really associated with the beginning of the Chinese economic miracle, if you want to call it that. What's interesting is also since the 1990s, we've seen with each successive set of leadership, a gradual centralization so pulling back from the Deng Xiaoping period, peak period of decentralization. But what's interesting to me is that each set of leaders has really implemented or overseen a different type of centralization. So if we look at Jiang Zemin and Zhu Rongji in their period, you know, what they were focused on was strengthening macro control over the economy. So central reforms around issues such as taxation, trying to curb inflation, rationalizing the banking system separating the party from the government. And so this was a type of centralization that was aimed at disciplining the government. So when Zhu Rongji implemented his administrative reforms in 1998, he basically slashed the size of the central government by half. So a period of centralization aimed at discipline. With Hu Jintao and, and Wen Jiabao, what we see is also centralization, but a very different type. You know, during, during their years of governance, what we saw was a stronger central government issuing more assertive, more active, more coherent industrial policy, and a central government that started to also become much more bloated. So you started seeing super ministries 
come onto the scene very strongly, like the National Development and Reform Commission, the Ministry of Industry and Information Technology, and so on. So a very different type of centralization. And then now that we come to the Xi Jinping period, you know, obviously he has centralized a lot of power in Beijing, but this type of centralization in contrast with Jiang Zemin and Zhu Rongji has really been about party discipline rather than government discipline. So even within these, these different periods of centralization, each set of leaders has focused on a different type of power that they were trying to centralize. Can I ask a follow-up question on, um, I can understand Beijing centralization drives as aspiration. What makes centralization stick? In other words, what is the tool that Beijing uses to enforce centralization? Again, I can understand, you know, Beijing looks out, it gets frustrated that uh, our policies aren't being enforced at the lower level. But again, that, that's an aspiration to have more control over the, over the lower level, sort of abstracting out to a larger, you know, mechanism of centralization. How do they drive centralization? Is this starving off resources? Is this sending out inspection teams? What has been the way that they've been able to progress centralization? I think the central government has various sets of tools at its disposal. When it comes to the sort of more day-to-day enforcement of specific issues, the tool set hasn't quite changed. The tool that the central government has relied on over many years has been to launch large-scale campaigns, basically. So it might be a short-term campaign about cleaning up the environment. It might be a short-term campaign trying to curb excess capacity. The problem is that when it comes to these types of enforcement, the central government can't enforce all of its issues all of the time. It's very much overstretched in terms of its resources. So these campaigns tend to be rather short-lived. The more extended or prolonged types of centralization that has had more long-lasting effects have, I think, involved much greater administrative restructuring. So for example, what Zhu Rongzi did in 1998 in basically slashing the size of the central government in order to instill a lot more discipline into it, in order to kind of rationalize the internal structure and these macroeconomic policy reforms. So centralizing or regionalizing control over banking to these larger regions in in China in reforming the fiscal revenue collection system between the local governments and the central governments. These have had more long-lasting effects. And obviously with, with Xi Jinping, he's unique in having managed to launch an anti-corruption campaign that lasted far longer than any of us thought was possible. Kyle, can I ask you to, to pick up on, on some of the issues that Yaling has just introduced? And, and I think this is the final scene-setting question before we get to the actual media paper, but what, what made your paper in some ways, not counterintuitive, but what made it so interesting to me is we think of this as being yet another, you know, a, a, another age of centralization under Xi Jinping, maybe capital C centralization. I wondered if you could pick up, um, Yaling was starting to sketch out some of the flavors of this uh, centralization drive mentioning the party, but from the position of a local level government, what would this centralization drive feel like as a local level cadre? How would I know that I'm, I'm not in Hu Jintao's China anymore? Well, I think as Yeling said, you know, the, the emphasis on party discipline, on very clear symbolic uh, authority supremacy of the center under Xi Jinping, even in the figure of Xi Jinping himself, has been a very clear point of departure. And that's real. 
you know, these discipline campaigns, the education campaigns to which cadres at all levels of the party have been subjected are very much a real part of their experience. They are aware that they are being watched much more closely for ideological errors, as well as for errors of discipline in other ways. And also, you know, with changes to party personnel promotion and evaluation criteria, more and more also the, the degree to which subnational leaders are complying with higher level policy targets is taken seriously in their own promotion chances. So these on the sort of personnel and party management side are very tangible changes that I think have been felt across the country. So this is something that I would broadly refer to as a kind of political centralization as well as what we see very clearly, a kind of symbolic centralization of authority with the huge you know, media projection of Xi's authority and the massive reams of publications of Xi's collected works of various study campaigns that are being disseminated across China. So this can't be missed or mistaken. But on the other hand, right, there's the question of day-to-day administrative operation, and there's just the reality of administering this enormously complex economy. So on the one hand, people like to draw comparisons between Xi-era China and the Mao period. And that this is fair as far as it goes, but China is a radically different country today than it was under Mao. It's arguably a vastly more challenging country to govern. You know, China was a country of largely sedentary people, largely rural people who lived at a much lower standard of living and had much less exposure to the outside world under Mao. That has radically changed. Virtually all Chinese citizens are now connected in one way or another to the global economy, to flows of information that go far beyond their locality, to cultural influences, ideas, social mobilization. And so in this much more dynamic, much wealthier, much more energetic and complicated reality, any central government faces a much bigger governance challenge, however much authority it thinks it possesses. So first, there's the reality of projecting this kind of power across the realm versus the increasing resistance to power that just comes from complexity. But there's also the administrative apparatus itself, right, which has gotten so huge, so wealthy in its own right, so unwieldy that it's not just managing the population of China that's become much harder, but since Mao's era, managing subnational leaders has become a much greater challenge because a lot of the resources, a lot of the day-to-day power that operates within China and its, and its political economy really is embodied in subnational leaders at the provincial level, the municipal level, county level on down. For these officials, they certainly have felt big changes in their day-to-day experience, but to a much greater extent, I think, than most observers appreciate, there's also been continuity in the sense that a lot of implementation of policy continues to happen at the local level. Yes, there have been efforts to streamline policymaking, to create new commissions and other highly empowered ministries at the center. And there is efforts you know, to sort of centralize policy formulation to a greater degree than under previous leaders. But implementation, which in China means a whole lot of policy formulation within centrally defined parameters, still is largely happening subnationally at the provincial level or below. And so, you know, from there, I think we can go on to talk a little bit more about how that's specifically changing across different tiers of the system. That's a good segue into maybe asking you, lingering with you, Kyle, to ask you now halfway through the podcast, but to finally get to the the thesis of the article. Again, I think just for folks who tend to think of We've got this kind of binary, central and, and local. You, you paint a, a multi-tiered system here. So I wonder if you can, can just kind of lay out simply what is the key argument you're making of the role of provinces within this admittedly centralizing China? And then the follow-up there is why is it that a centralizing Beijing may not be zero-sum for a province in the way it may be for a local township? Right. So in this paper, Yaling and I are really building on a longer tradition of scholarship on China's central local relations. Um, goes back to scholars like David Goodman, 
Linda Chalan Lee, John Donaldson, Jay Ho Chung, and others who have you know done a great job over uh, many generations of, of analysis, really of showing that power in China is not necessarily zero sum between center and locality, and that's particularly true, I'd argue, at these sort of intermediate levels of the state, like the province or the the prefecture or now the prefectural level city. That having one level become stronger doesn't necessarily make the other level weaker. And so I think a particularly important realization along these lines came from Andrew Murtha almost a couple of decades ago now, I think 15 years ago now, in his article entitled China's Soft Centralization, where he emphasized that uh, under Jiang Zemin and Zhu Rongji, as Yeling uh, talked about, China did experience a certain degree of centralization. But not all this centralization was true centralization in the sense of bringing more authority or control back to just Beijing. A lot of the administrative and regulatory centralization that was occurring was actually concentrating more power in provincial capitals, giving provinces more influence over affairs at the level below them, which would be the prefectural level, or over the, the next level down, the county level. And so, because it's a multi-level system rather than simply a two-level system, right, in, in China's government architecture. When we think about how important provinces or other subnational units are, we have to think about how much power and authority and autonomy of a, of a kind they enjoy, not just vis-a-vis -vis the center, but really vis-a-vis -vis the actors below them as well. And so I think the big movement that we see taking place under Xi Jinping, which in some ways is a continuation of, but in other ways even an accentuation of what was going on before, is that as Beijing has gotten more powerful, it's true that central policymakers, including Xi Jinping himself, can have more sway over outcomes across the country. But is it really provinces that have lost out as a result of this sort of recalibration or reconfiguration of power? We think not. We think that it's actually sub-provincial actors that have become more beholden to higher level governments and particularly to provinces. Because in many ways, China is still really governed as a country of provinces. Provinces are as big as major countries in a lot of the world. And that's not you know, coincidental, right? These are large governance units already. It's already hard to coordinate policymaking or implementation at a provincial level, let alone at China's full scale. And so what Beijing has done, building on a long tradition, is to use provinces as kind of key governance units to set some key policy aims centrally, but then to have provinces really figure out how to implement these aims on their own. And the corresponding piece of this, to empower provinces, to give them more tools for this, there has been recentralization or this kind of soft recentralization to the provincial level continuing to take place. And that becomes even more important in a context where the center has even more ambitious policy goals, where the center is originating even more resources that lower level governments that are actually at where the, the level where the rubber hits the road depend on. Yeah, and just as a quote I liked in here, you said that, you know, provinces act as gatekeepers between the resource-rich central state and the resource-hungry local actors. Kyle, can I just ask you why you included or what's important about this idea of development space? The full title of the article is Provincial Power in a Centralizing China, the Politics of Domestic and International, quote, Development Space. What is development space? Right. So I think Yaling and I were, have both struggled to kind of articulate what role it is that these sort of intermediate actors as gatekeepers play in China's current development model, right? Because we know that if you're talking about urban construction, if you're talking about opening new factories, right? A lot of that activity is happening at a more local level, like the city level, like the county level. That's where a lot of key decisions about land use, about day-to-day -day running of business are taking place. Conversely, right, at the very high level, Beijing has the power to, you know, uh, create huge amounts of capital for bank lending. It can create policy authorizations, final authority. The role that we see, this gatekeeping role that you just referred to, that we see provinces playing, we realize is really one that shapes the sort of amount of space or the prospects that lower level actors have 
to attract both policy opportunities and also economic resources to their jurisdictions that will enable them to sustain this model of kind of expansive growth that all of China virtually has become addicted to. So a land-driven, capital-intensive model of development. When Beijing controls so many of those resources ultimately, but can't ex exercise meaningful control at a more finely grained level of where the resources go, then these intermediate gatekeepers become really important in kind of creating the kind of bubbles of you know, preferential policies or opportunity that localities or specific industries depend on to grow. Yeling, I'll turn to you now, just building off of Kyle's last comment. Obviously, provinces as these intermediaries between their sub-provincial, you know, townships, villages, enterprises, cities, and the resource-rich center, they're not necessarily independent or objective arbiters uh, of where these resources should go. And Kyle, I think just at the end, was starting to reference some of the problems that may occur from Beijing's perspective. And if you're entrusting provinces with this pretty critical role in channeling resources or implementing policy. So can you discuss where we might see some distortionary effects from Beijing's perspective. It announces this big grand policy or, or it wants to sort of move resources down through the provinces to the sub-provincial to achieve outcomes. Where might provinces set the process going off in, an, in a skewed direction? Sure. So in our paper, we run through three different issue areas that kind of reveal this provincial predilection towards chasing large-scale investment and interpreting development very strictly through the lens of extensive development. One of the case studies looks at industrial policy. The second case study looks at rural development in the experiments for provinces to directly administer counties. And in our third case study, we look at foreign economic relations, specifically at the Belt and Road Initiative. So just to give you one very quick example from the industrial policy case, Looking at the industrial policies themselves issued by the central government and then contrasting the central government policy with provincial implementation policies is actually very revealing in laying bare the divergence between the central government's intent and the provincial government's actual interpretation of these central policies. So while central policy has for some time now been very focused on structural transformation, meaning to curb excess capacity, to shift from an investment-driven to a consumption-driven growth model towards more high-quality, intensive growth that is higher productivity, more rational systems of production, and to channel more resources towards building up skill capabilities and innovation in particular. Provinces have tended to interpret these national industrial policies very narrowly through the quantitative lens of mobilizing resources for investment. And we can see this very clearly through China's high-tech industrial policies, such as the new energy vehicles um, policy. So for example, in 2012, the state council issued this national policy for jumpstarting and fostering new energy vehicles, industrial development. And if you read the policy, it focuses on issues such as innovation. It focuses on building environmental sustainability it focuses on building a strong regulatory environment from standard setting to intellectual property protection. And it had actually even explicitly warned against making blind investment and warned against duplicative projects in different parts of China. And so it's, it's this more coherent policy really aimed at boosting China's capacity in innovation and in sort of more quality driven growth. If you then switch to look at how provinces then implemented the state council policy, 
We, in our paper, look at Hebei province as an example. So if you look at Hebei's implementing policy for new energy vehicles, it's really revealing. The policy actually essentially focuses on investment and construction. So a very quantitative approach towards growth. The policy emphasizes the, the need to build six big industrial bases in Hebei province and listing different favored localities as investment sites. So that speaks to what Kyle was elaborating on just now, the role that provinces play as gatekeepers, right? They take this national policy and they say, okay, this is how we're going to implement it. We're going to implement it by building these big industrial bases. And here are the specific localities at the city level or prefecture level that are going to be the sites of investment. The policy emphasized building bigger firms, stronger new energy vehicle firms, promoting the construction of major projects, vigorously carrying out investment projects, and basically channeling preferential access to land and capital towards this particular industry. And we think of Hebei province as very much typical of other provinces and how they approach the implementation of national industrial policies issued by the state council, such that and what happened was as more and more provinces channeled more and more investment towards new energy vehicles, surprise, surprise, we ended up with a situation of excess capacity, such that by 2017, what we saw the central government doing was issuing a new set of national guidelines specifically aimed at curbing this overinvestment in new energy vehicles. So the outcome, even though the central government really wanted to push China towards high quality growth, structural transformation, greater capabilities in innovation and so on, what we ended up with in terms of the outcome, once it came to the provinces playing their role in channeling resources and implementation policies was duplication, excess capacity, and very much a distortion of national industrial policy. And we can see this playing out as well in the current Made in China 2025 policies as well, if we want to talk about that. I would imagine that from Beijing's perspective, finding ways to intervene and re-correct or correct uh, the mal-implementation of industrial policy would be much easier on the provincial level than at the local level. So some of the problems that you lay out quite convincingly in the paper, I guess I was less scratching my head of, well, that seems a relatively easy for that issue for them to monitor, given the small number of, of entities they're dealing with and the number of tools that Beijing has through nomenclature or, or, or other tools to be able to reach in and discipline or guide. So why isn't it cracking the whip more on, on provinces earlier on when it's able to assess that there's a kind of a mal-implementation or suboptimal implementation of a policy? I think when it comes to center-province relations, it remains quite difficult for the central government. I mean, we tend to forget that central policies issued, for example, by ministries in Beijing don't have a binding effect on provincial governments. So what happens is that there has to be a much more intricate relationship of negotiation between Beijing and these provincial governments. The provincial governments retain, at least legally, quite a lot of autonomy in how they want to run their jurisdiction. And so this is a long-standing, deeply entrenched problem. So if you go back from the days of Mao, of course, and even in Zhu Rongji's administration, you know, Jiang and Zhu were seen as fairly strong leaders who were able to kind of crack the whip 
But even then, if you if you look at some of Zhurongzi's speeches from the 1990s, he's just railing against the local governments, trying to, you know, kind of haranguing them, you know, stop wasting so much capital on this useless, low quality investment. We don't need that anymore. We need high quality investment. But even he couldn't really fix the problem. It's just very, very entrenched because... When it comes to these policies, as, as we've emphasized earlier, Beijing's really overstretched, right, in terms of what issues they can actually enforce and for how long they can enforce the policies for. One of the interesting things in looking at the broader supply-side structural reform uh, policy agenda, which came out in 2015, which of course is looking at overcapacity in, in a number of sectors, is the utilization of discipline inspection, CCDI, as a way of pulling on that party lever to ensure that cadres were enforcing some of the overcapacity targets that Beijing had set, which seemed to me just hearing the comment you just made about the overstretched comment, I think is structural. And if everything's a priority, nothing's a priority. But in terms of what you were saying about some of the limited powers that some of the ministries would have at the subnational level, it seems that maybe one of the things that she is innovating is pulling on or utilizing some of the party tools, not just about the traditional buckets of party discipline and propaganda and ideology, but actually as a tool for policy implementation, because of course, their CCDI does have power, because one of your responsibilities as a Communist Party cadre is to be fulfilling the guidelines of the center. And if that's a, you know, if it's an overcapacity target from NDRC, that could fall into the party bucket. So just, I'm just thinking out loud, but just on you and Kyle talking about this being a political recentralization, it seems that for she, the party as an apparatus is one of the mechanisms to overcome some of these historical thousand-year-old problems of getting localities to do what the heck you have to do. And, and she just seems to be really focused on the party as an instrument of, of implementation of power. Now, that may doesn't overcome all the issues you've just raised, but I wonder if that's one of she's attempted tools in the toolkit. If I could just jump in, I mean, I would say that this is, I think, a striking departure, right? We see much more of this blending again of party and government structure taking place under Xi, not just these inspection teams, but also more generally the National Supervision Commission, whose ambit includes not just party leaders, party cadres, but also government, public employees, right? So clearly an intent on the part of the center to be able to uh, enforce its writ. But I think we, we still have to put this in the much bigger context of the kind of mutual hostage situation that not just provinces in the center, but all sort of subnational government or regional government in China and the center exist in, which is that the center obviously enjoys final authority and symbolic authority, and that can never be challenged, and, and challenges to that can never be tolerated. But the, the tacit understanding is always that there's mutual dependency and there's give and take. And within the facade of you know, unity and top-down leadership, there's constant back and forth bargaining. And that's a deeply entrenched part of the system that will be difficult to, to eradicate if it can ever be eradicated. And we see this particularly when it comes to efforts to impose economic austerity or discipline, whether it was the economic austerity drives under who and when in the early and mid-2000s, or whether it's more recently the supply-side structural reforms. These are efforts to impose concentrated costs on localities. And localities fight these tooth and nail. They may have to be seen to be complying when they're under the microscope, but the second the microscope moves, they go back to their normal ways of doing things. And they also know that if they wait a year or two and macroeconomic indicators trend downward and the center is again worried about boosting growth, that things will loosen up. So the, the local governments also have tremendous resources. And the sort of backdrop to all of this strengthening of the center 
is that the center has strengthened partly because localities, subnational governments have gotten so strong over the course of reform and opening and in the, you know, the decades since 1978 that the, the center has no choice if it wants any control but to be extremely appointed in its measures. Yeah, and I think the challenges that the central government faces really is also embedded in some of the contradictions that Beijing's oversight has placed on, on local governments. So on the one hand, Beijing wants these local governments to implement their policies faithfully, you know, do smart investments, don't waste capital on, on, on useless projects. On the other hand, these local government leaders are very much aware that they're competing with each other to stand out from the crowd, you know, when it comes to their career advancement. And the most straightforward way of standing out is to, you know, be able to build some highly visible highway or high-speed rail or development zone. And they have maybe three, four years to, to deliver the, the results. And that means looking towards short-term capital investment. So they're getting sort of contradictory signals from the central government as well. I mean, that's a really important point. We did an event with Huang Yanzhong, who just has a new book out called Toxic Politics, which is about sort of China's environment, the health crisis, but looking at it from a governance angle. And I'm going to pivot off that to go to my final question to the two of you, which is the kind of so what. In Yanzhong's book, it was quite a stark thesis. He was saying the weaknesses or deficiencies in China's governance system are equaled or as significant as some of the strengths that we've seen over the past year in dealing with COVID-19. But he said, ultimately, unless there's more fundamental political reforms, just China won't be able to solve some of these vexing longer-term public environmental issues. And I wanted to ask you, thinking about the many aspirations that China has uh, for great power status, benign and and maybe some would say malign, and also the challenges that I think Beijing has articulated that it needs to overcome, whether that's on the public health front, environmental challenges, demographic challenges. Looking at this angle that you've looked at in terms of policy implementation and the role of provinces in yelling some of your comments on some of the the ways in which provinces may maladapt or malimplement policies, what does this tell you about China's future prospects. Uh, we're we're going to stay in a centralizing Xi administration for the next 700 years or until he, uh, he retires. Um, where do you see this going? What, what is the kind of big takeaway for you, uh, Yaling? I'll start with you when, you when you think about this. What does this mean about China's future prospects? Or is China in, in a relatively, is this a holding pattern? This, this neither deforms policy implementation that much. Um, it just keeps it in a kind of suboptimal muddle. Yeah, I think... I think there are some very important implications in how we think about China and how we formulate policy towards China. In this age of centralization and under Xi Jinping, I think it's really easy to mistake all of the policies that, and activities that emanate from China as part of some grand, coherent, coordinated master plan issued forth by, by Beijing, right? And, and of course, we can understand why people think that because China is a communist regime, it's a one-party state. But it's also a very large one-party state with very complex internal governance. And I think there's a tendency to overlook that under the Xi Jinping era. And, and the cons- one consequence is that countries then tend to formulate their responses accordingly. You know, they tend to formulate their responses by interpreting everything that's coming out of China as a grand master plan, right? The Made in China 2025 fears surrounding this policy are that it's some kind of centrally guided master plan to conquer global markets for high-tech and intelligent manufacturing. But we tend to forget that implementation still falls to the hands of local governments. 
And provinces, when it comes to implementation, just can't rid themselves of their addiction to this extensive investment-led model of growth. The same thing when it comes to foreign economic policy, right? There are fears that the Belt and Road Initiative is part of China's grand strategy to co-opt other countries into China's broader sphere of influence, fears of debt trap diplomacy, fears that the Belt and Road Initiative is undermining existing multilateral institutions and eroding international norms. But the actual outcomes on the ground when it comes to the Belt and Road very much depend on the specific sub-state actors that are involved. Right, Guangxi province's interest in, in Belt and Road are very narrow, much more narrowly defined compared to Beijing. And so I think that what this means in terms of how we engage with China and, and China, China policy is, first of all, policy engagement with China needs to be needs to move beyond just state to state diplomacy. It needs to not just be a dialogue between Washington and Beijing, even though that's highly crucial. I think policy engagement needs to be much more multi-pronged and much more sensitive to these subnational interests and to these subnational authorities who still continue to wield a lot of influence over how these grand ambitions of Chinese economic policy actually do play out. So we need to have a much deeper understanding of the multiple actors involved in China's outward economic activities and the actors involved in industrial policy. Great point. And also, just as you were speaking, it, it's one of the ways in which the political tightening in China, I, I don't think Beijing quite understands how the lack of information coming out of China actually further encroaches on its global development space. Because if, it, if there was more openness and transparency about the actual existing policymaking, if there were more robust dialogues you know, opening up to academics and researchers and showing how the policymaking process actually works. I mean, I think the important takeaway, which you just, you just highlighted, is we need a much better filter for understanding what is kind of the unitary action of, of the Xi administration and what is just the outcome of a messy, complex policymaking process involving lots and lots of different actors, many of which with competing interests and, and objectives. I think you're right. Beijing doesn't help that, especially projecting this image of unified, centralized political system under the core, rallying around the core, that only helps to sort of, I think, further muddy the water. So I think that that's a great point. Kyle, last word for you, what is the kind of tying this, this really important work to some of the big outstanding questions that we, you know, external observers have about China? Where does this connect for you? So one one area uh, I would say just building on what Yaling's just said is that we yeah we really do need to pay attention to subnational agency. I think particularly from an American perspective, we too easily kind of conflate the idea of agency with independence and think about you know being in a federal system as we are. Our idea of subnational agency is a governor who can stand up to the president of the United States and say I disagree with everything you've just said and I'm going to go 180 degrees in the opposite direction. That's not how this looks at all in China, but that doesn't mean that subnational leaders don't enjoy agency. And there are ways within China's unitary system that can paradoxically empower subnational actors even more than in a federal system where the roles of central and local actors are more cleanly divided. And by that, I mean that in a unitary system, if a subnational actor has strong political connections at the center, uh, for example, an acolyte of Xi Jinping who now runs a province, right? You think of somebody like Chen Minar in Chongqing or Li Qiang in, in Shanghai. These kinds of actors, if they play their cards right, they can tap into central authority. They can sort of borrow the authority and the resources, the imprimatur of the central state for what are often very much subnational purposes. And those, because they're subnational purposes doesn't mean they're contradictory to Beijing's purposes, but it also doesn't mean they're perfectly aligned. 
So we need to recognize these kind of intermediate forms of agency and policymakers abroad also need to think about these kinds of differences and what looks like a unitary system moving in lockstep often is a system that's moving roughly in the same direction, but with a lot of different pieces and a lot of noise and a lot of space between them that can be ex more effectively exploited by sophisticated you know, policies uh, from, from policymakers elsewhere. Um, the, the other big point that I would say is just that we, as Yaling said, often tend to interpret, again, China's extremely ambitious national plans and domestic policies as actions that are sort of originating from the, the will of the, of the top leader and long-term vision. We have to also see these as reactions to the problems that China is always grappling with. And there's a mix there. Xi Jinping has an enormous amount of you know, ability to exert his own leadership style and ambitions, but that doesn't mean that a lot of his policy agenda isn't composed of dealing with long-standing problems and trying to find a way out of what seem like extremely intractable issues. And China still has a long way to go if it's going to extricate itself from these problems that we're talking about. The big problem of resource and capital intensive growth getting out from under this huge mountain of debt that China has created is nowhere in sight. We see China doubling down on infrastructure development, the idea that China is going to link every 500,000 person city in the country to high speed rail. This is a great way to keep economic growth going at a high rate for 2021 when the Communist Party celebrates its 100th anniversary. It's not a good way to deal with a real structural problem of debt. So these sort of subnational pressures, this growth logic, these are long-standing challenges, and, and we have to really continue to recognize the weaknesses as well as the strengths of the Chinese system. Great comments, Kyle, and a great way to close it off with a clarion call for more in-depth research into actual existing China, which I, I think is just so, so critical. So I want to thank both of you for generosity, your time. So highly recommend folks. Actually, China Journal is, is one of the good ones, which prices this at a point that mere mortals can afford outside of a university library subscription. So highly recommend folks subscribe to China Journal, but also go get this paper. It's just a really important piece of work to understand the complexities and nuances of China's uh, actual existing policy making. So Kyle, Yaling, thank you very much for your time and thanks for joining the podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, Jude. It's been great to be on. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts. From Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 